Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today... We had Mr. Alan Hunkins on the show, who is our first international speaker on the podcast, who's all the way from Massachusetts in the USA. Alan is the CEO of the Hunkins Leadership Group, a Forbes contributor, author of the Cracking the Leadership Code, and TEDx speaker who spends his days helping high-achieving people become high-achieving leaders. Over his 20-year career, Alan has worked with over 2,000 groups of leaders in 25 different countries. His clients include Walmart, Pfizer, Citigroup, General Electric, State Farm Insurance, IBM, General Motors, and Microsoft, just to name a few. In addition to being a leadership speaker, a consultant, a trainer, and a coach, Alan is the author of Cracking the Leadership Code, The Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders which was endorsed by leadership luminaries such as Daniel Pink, Jim Coos, Barry Posner, and Marshall Goldsmith. On top of all this, he's a faculty member of the Duke Corporation of Education, which was ranked number two worldwide in 2019 by Financial Times on its list of customized executive education programs. Alan's exceptional writing has also been featured in The Fast Company, Incorporated, Forbes, Chief Executive, Chief Learning Officer, and Business Insider. Before the podcast, I actually sat down and actually read Alan's book, Cracking the Leadership Code, and I can honestly say it was an absolute fantastic and extremely practical guide on leadership. There were so many pearls of wisdom that I empower all leaders and aspiring leaders to read. You'll most definitely learn something new that will take your leadership levels to the next height. In the episode, we deep dived into what does Alan mean when he talks about the leadership code, the three C's of leadership in connection, communication, and collaboration, the importance of being a consistent leader, how to become a better communicator, and building a great culture of communication. I also posed the question to Alan about can an entrepreneur think about rapid growth and bring their best leadership to the table? to which he gave an exceptional response to. We challenged the meaning of success and discussed what leadership will look like coming out of the pandemic. Thanks again, Alan, for coming on the show and connecting with some stranger on the other side of the world. It really was appreciated. I know you're all absolutely going to love this chat. And if you'd like to learn more about some of the other amazing leaders that we've had on the Creating Synergy podcast, then be sure to jump on our website at synergyiq.com.au or check us out at the Creating Synergy podcast on all the podcast outlets. Cheers. Excellent. Welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, your host. And today, all the way from Massachusetts in the US, we have Alan Hunkins on the show. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, Daniel. I'm really excited to be here with you today. I am just going to let you know that I am very nervous. This is our first international podcast. So uh, thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. You are uh, world-renowned. Um, and very well known by your 
your uh, Forbes writing, you've got over 100 odd thousand followers on LinkedIn, you've done a TEDx talk, you've also got your uh, Cracking the Leadership Code book, which is doing some amazing and wonderful things. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. And to think that I get to talk to you from yesterday, it's even more exciting. That's <laughs> very true. <laughs> it is very true. Um, yeah, two, two different days. We're talking on two different days, which is yeah. quite amazing. What, what time is it over there at the moment? Uh, it is 6.23 p.m. PM. on a Thursday evening. And we are 9.50 on a Friday morning. So that is uh, it's very, very exciting. Uh, now, I've... I've been listening to your book actually on Audible. I'm about 28 minutes from the from the finish, so I haven't quite nice. got to the end yet and uh, nice. heard all the goodness right at the end of the book. But um, you must be very proud. It is an amazing book, very, very practical, I believe. I'm, I'm listening through it and there's some pearls of wisdom, just things just ticking off in my head going, oh, I could be doing more of that or I should be doing yeah, more of that. Sure. So you've had some greats like Dan Pink, Marshall Goldsmith, uh, Barry Posner, Jim Coos, all endorsed it. So firstly, kudos. Well done. It's, it's Thank an amazing. Thank you very book. much. Thank you. It's been a labor of love. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about the, the book specifically. Like the title in itself is Cracking the Leadership Code, which – really um, connected with me, especially because I'm a lover of all things Dan Brown and, and the Da Vinci Code. So that, that sure. struck, struck my, my fancy very early. But the one thing I want to do, I, I want to ask is, does every individual have their own code? Like, is there a code for each leader? Interesting. Uh, so I don't think there's a code for every leader. I think the real challenge, and the book gets into this in quite quite some depth, is the code is in every person that you would hope to lead. That's correct. Right? That is the code to crack. Is There is, in fact, in this most recent Forbes article that just came out today, I was interviewing a CEO of a company called Semtech, and um, mm -hmm. it's a high-tech company. They do semiconductors. And one of the things the CEO shared was that we can't have one-size-fits-all solutions. And let's face it, humans like simplicity. We like heuristics, rules of thumb, like, oh, when you're doing this, you should just do that, and that'll work, and everything is fine. Yeah. And the if word it was only pops into all the time, it? and if it was only that easy, then everyone would be a great leader. And again, if you're listening to this, think of all the leaders you've ever worked with. How many have been exceptional? How many have been horrible? And probably most of them have been somewhere in between. And so it isn't so much that we're going to crack this code of like if you just do this, you will now go down the golden path happily ever after as a leader. It's more of a question of leading other humans is a lot of work and there is no one size fits all solution. However, there are a set of fundamental principles and then when you apply them and look at the feedback that you get as you apply those different principles, then you can adjust and tailor your code cracking as it were mm. so that you can achieve greatness in others. And this is I think one of the important distinctions as you think about this idea, which is there is a huge difference between being a high performer and facilitating high performance in others. And what leaders have to be intensely curious about is others, as opposed to going, I'm in charge, this is about me, this is about my ego, this is about my status, my title, my position, my power. No, 
you have this role so that you can serve others and then you can unlock whatever greatness might be in them. And by them unleashing that, guess what? You get the kudos as well. So that's where I'd go around this idea of can you crack the leadership code? Yeah, it's in a, an important point you make. I mean, what we see in today's society is the most technically advanced humans get promoted into the into the leadership roles. So technically advanced and high-performing from a technical aspect, they end up in these leadership positions. Therefore, they're, they're almost set up to fail because they haven't got that skill set in leading people, nor do they understand that to create a high-performing team, the onus needs to be moved away from them as a high-performer and, you know, open the pathway for everyone else to be a high performer. Yeah. Does it, and, and we'll keep, go on. I was say, and he, the thing about that that is so insidious is the fact is you, if you are that high performer, you've been getting strokes all along the way mm-hmm. for this. So you have cultivated these strengths. You've developed these certain muscles to a, such a fine-tuning place that they have worked for you. So the idea of jettisoning all of what's working for you and to pick up a whole other set of muscles and exercises that have frankly probably atrophied if ever were developed, who wants to do that, yeah. right? I mean, I don't know about you, but like, I'll give you an example. Like I go to the gym relatively mm-hmm. often and I tend to fall into rust. Like I do the things that I'm good at because <laughs> they feel better when someone says, oh, you know, you should do Bulgarian split squats. I'm like, no <laughs> what's that about no first of all those i've tried that once yeah. and i they're painful yeah, and i all, can't all i need is a big biceps that's all i need <laughs> yeah or whatever it might be so the thing is you know we are creatures of habit and that works well in certain cases but it does not work well for making the transition from being a high performer to being a high performing leader it doesn't so i want to like specifically talking about the code again if you are a leader and you've and you've you're in a position that you've potentially cracked the code, you've hit high performing, and then you get promoted and you go into a new team. Is it research into what is a next code for that team, or is it just continue the same trait? Like, do you have to adjust every team, every industry, every department, whether it's engineering versus HR versus IT? Like, what is your thought process around that? Yeah, I think you do have to adjust at a certain level. The good news is you don't have to completely throw out the baby with the bathwater in this situation in that there's certain fundamental principles that are going to apply. And again, I coach and work with leaders in every single industry you can imagine. So this is fairly, what I've discovered over the years. This is fairly industry agnostic. And so as you are shifting to a new team, you're going to have a new culture. You're going to have new individuals on the team. If you're shifting to different industries, you're going to have different makeups of how people think, what are their priorities, what's important, what stands out for them. That will all shift for sure. However, what we have found is that, and this is through the research and also through my own kind of field practice and research, is there are three fundamental, I'll call them meta skills that need to be in place in order to create Uh, ultimately high performance result in the people that you're leading. And those three meta skills are connection, number one, because connection is all about human to human relationship because at its core, leadership is a relationship between a leader and someone who chooses to follow. So you've got to create connections, number one. Number two is what are you doing to create clear communication? And the goal of that is to create common understanding. And so certain things are going to foster clear communication. Certain things are going to get in the way. 
understanding is more challenging than it looks. In fact, I oftentimes coach leaders and say that the default setting for human com communication is misunderstanding. So mm. assume whatever you're going to say, your message will not be understood the way you want it to be. So what do you need to do to make sure it is? So we've got number one, connection, number two, communication. The third one is around collaboration. So there's certain things that you can do as a leader, again, industry agnostic, that will foster a culture or an environment where people can thrive. And there's certain things that you do that is going to make a mediocre culture. And those transcend different industries. And I know because I've had to lead and train and work with people and, you know, thousands of people and hundreds of industries. And so what you find is what works and take what works and then start to thin slice and recognize the patterns. And this book is really a distillation of so many of those different tools and tips, as you, you said, super practical things that people can do in order to lead with anyone anywhere. Yeah, it is. And I really, I really love the, the way you have broken it down into that connection, communication and collaboration. Um, using the same letter at the start of each word definitely makes things <laughs> much easier for people to remember, the triple C method. The sure. connection piece is the piece which I, I was really honing in on. Um, and I felt that the consistency part that you, that you talked about and being consistent as a leader, I'd never even thought about it. I, I had never even, it never even crossed my mind that consistency, and when I say I hadn't crossed my mind, to be an actual thing, like I knew you had to sort of follow some sort of, uh, you know, uh, some sort of rule book or guideline or so people can, there is some sort of autonomy, but to be consistent, um, can you explain your thought process on what consistent means and why it is so, it is so important, especially Given the fact that there are so many variables that you face as a leader day to day, how consistency can get thrown out? Sure. So one of the things that we talk about in the section on connection around leaders is that one of the things that creates a sense of, we'll call it psychological safety in the people that you lead is consistency. And that is a subset of credibility. So the fact is when you show up Knowing, like if I know, okay, Daniel is the way Daniel is on a regular basis and does certain things, it makes, it makes me relax. And then obviously the flip side of that is if you show up one way one day and then show up completely different another way, like what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to follow? Because part of following, and this is, this is interesting. I don't know if you've ever, did you ever take any acting classes in your life, Daniel? Uh, if you've seen me act, absolutely not. <laughs> no. All right. Well, I, I went to I went to drama school okay, yes. years ago. So a little known yes. fact, I actually have a, a master's in fine art, three years in an acting conservatory. And one of the most basic exercises, which kind of gets spoofed a lot of times, is called the mirror exercise, mm -hmm. right? And so the idea of the mirror exercise is two people stand there and one person sort of initiates a movement and the other person tries to follow it as though they're in a mirror. So if you think about it, if you're leading in the mirror exercise, you want to, if you want someone to be able to successfully mirror you, you have to be consistent about where you're going. If I start jumping around, no one can follow that. Mm. And so part of consistency creates this safety and this clarity of, oh, I see where we are and I see where we're going next. And so around credibility, there's some things that really stand out in terms of building consistency. Most one, the first one is, is super obvious. It's showing up on time. Right. Mm. So if you consistently show up, if the meeting is eight o'clock and you are there ready to go, it's eight o'clock, boom, that says something about you. If you consistently show up late, 
that says something about you. And people start, and again, we don't know the reason, and we don't need to know the reason, because again, humans love shortcuts. Mm. And part of the assumptions we make is what psychologists call the halo effect. That is, if you are dependable and show up on time, people also think that you're a diligent, hard worker. May or may not be true. What we know is that you're showing up on time. (laughs) But there is this halo effect that starts to come into play when we start being consistent in certain ways. You know, I was just talking to a leader that I coach, and he was saying how um, when he shows up to the office, he got some feedback from some of his people, is that pretty much he walks in in the morning from the elevator to his office, and he kind of gets in his office, closes the door, and they don't see him all day. And so he has been working consistently on changing that habit of as he comes in to walk through the office and to stop at every person. He says, I got to remember, it only is taking me five minutes of time. But to stop and say, hey, Daniel, good morning. How are you? How was your night? How was your evening? Just to build some human connection relationship. It doesn't take a lot of time, but it's this consistency. And if you think about this principle of consistency and take it out of leadership, but just across the board in human performance, if you want to retire with money in your bank account, Everyone talks about the magic of compound, consistent investing, right? So every month you're putting away a little bit of money. If you want to be an Olympic athlete, you have to go and train every day. You don't go, I'm going to go two days this week and then take five days off and do it. Again, you think about consistency across the board in every endeavor of humanity. Consistency is so important to growth and development. So that's where I'd start with consistency. Oh, it's such an important point what's going through my head is is i run my own business right we're a management consulting firm if you, if you want to pigeonhole us so we do very similar work sure uh, to, to, to the liking of yourself um we work with companies and leaders all around but but running your own business we're about 20 odd strong now and you when working and i'm talking really this is from a, my own personal uh, perspective you have that trade-off between client and, and team member that you know and so some certain clients can only meet in certain times and when you've got a consistent meeting booked in at that at, at that at that stage does the does the consistency need to be day in day out at the exact same time or is it we want to have a meeting that meeting may get shifted but we're very much going to have that meeting on that day what is what is your thought process and we are getting into semantics but yeah, yeah. So point. consistency doesn't mean daily consistency unless that's your agreed upon expectation. Mm. Um, and so I think what is most important, and this is another thing I coach leaders, I say this sentence at least three times a week, human beings are very good at many things. Reading minds is not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and so one of the things we want to do as leaders is we want to make our implicit assumptions explicit. Like how many of us listening right now have had the experience, and I know I've had this experience, where I, you know, I've worked for many bosses in my life, and I used to have these one-on-one meetings scheduled, and somehow they'd always get pushed off for like, oh, we have an important client meeting. You understand, right? And of course, there's a part of me that understands, but there's the part of me that's going, this is the third time you've rescheduled the same meeting. And so do I trust that leader just a little bit less? Absolutely. Do I understand why they're doing it? Absolutely. So the trade-off here is as a leader, what is the cost and benefit around this? Now, what I have found, you know, when I first started running my own business, and stuff, I used to be very, oh, it's a client. Oh, what, what time do you want to meet? I'll do that. You know what I have found? Clients are people. And if I can't meet now, I will find a time to make it work. And so I think something for us to consider is where are our priorities? 
There's a time and a place to be client focused, but there is definitely a time and a place to be colleague or team member focused. Now, we have to understand the clients ultimately are the ones that pay the bills, but without team members, it's just going to be me running my solopreneurship. <laughs> and so there's that's why there's no one hard and fast rule around this. But the key is to consider what, what's going on. And the other thing is also if I, let's say, for example, because look, it's, this is not about perfection, but it's around what is the principle? The principle is consistency works better than not. Are there times that I need to renegotiate agreements? Absolutely. But when I do so, can I be as conscientious and as thoughtful as possible? So, hey, this has come up. This is why. This is how I'm feeling. Will this work for you? Do you understand? You know, as opposed to, here's a thing that really will tick people off. And I'll just share an example. So I was asked, hey, I was actually booked in. Could you do these two days of work for this client? And it was November, let's say, 11th and 12th. Sure. So I, I agreed to that. Well, somewhere along the way, the scope of the project changed and it became instead of a two-day thing of work, it became a one-day thing of work. But no one stopped to tell me. <laughs> and then suddenly like, oh, yeah, no, this is one day of work. And so it's actually, so you don't actually only get paid for one day of work. There was never any, hey, we're changing this. Hey, there's an impact on you. Hey, does this still work for you? Because here I am in this place, I'm a freelancer. Am I coming mm -hmm. in to do this or not? And to me, that just comes down to respect, right? It comes down to respecting the individual, respecting that their time is valuable, their energy is valuable, their commitment is valuable, and I'm treating them as a peer as opposed to an it, right? Mm -hmm. an, an object, that you are a human resource to do my bidding. You know, it's amazing how much of our language in organizational life still comes from this industrial age, human resources, where we think of people as interchangeable parts and you'll remember in the book i write about this quite a bit yeah. is that this that was the mindset of the industrial age mindset where literally management and leadership was the brains and did all the thinking and if you were labor the employee it was your job to basically shut up and do as you're told and that is not the world that we live in and unfortunately too many leaders are living out that inherited industrial age leadership legacy that has existed for too long and frankly makes for really poor leadership in 2021 and beyond Absolutely. And you do touch on the old school, you know, inverted commas, old school leadership style, the very authoritarian approach. Um, Easy for you to say, authoritarian, I, yeah. Yeah, I can never get that word. Big <laughs> words don't work for me. Um, the, the approach of that, um, of the old school type leadership, what is your thoughts of that moving forward? Because uh, it really, when you talk about connection, the the that approach just does, does not work in today's day and age does it no it doesn't work at all it doesn't work at all and particularly it doesn't work for people who are we'll call i'm generalizing here but for millennials and gen z in the workplace which by mm. the way they're the majority of the workforce now correct the value system has changed right mm. so the idea is that Basically, old school leaders was command and control. I am the commander in chief. I will tell you what to do and your job is to do it. And don't question, do as I say, because I'm the boss and that's why. That only worked to a certain extent. When, thinking back to the industrial age, when basically you look at supply and demand of basic economics, where you had massive amounts of supply of labor. And so the demands were, you know what? If you don't want this boring job, I got 10 people outside that will take it for you, mm. right? And also, we didn't have the transparency and in information technology. Like, we had no LinkedIn. We had no Glassdoor. We had no <laughs> Indeed. We had none of the tools to go, 
where might the grass be greener? Who's treating their employees better? Where do I want to work? And also expectations were quite different back then. So our values as human beings have shifted. We expect to find meaning and purpose. I mean, that is a common conversation for everyone to have these days. The number one thing, research LinkedIn found recently, number one reason people say they would leave their job is the inability to learn and grow. And I can tell you, 50 years ago, learning and growing in your job? No, it was it was a job. It was a paycheck. And that was the factor. But we expect so much more. Our expectations have gone through the roof. And not just as employees, but as people. You know, just think about, you know, you have this amazing, you know, before we went on air, we were talking about the internet bandwidth in Australia. And just, and just you know, like the fact that you and I are sitting literally around the planet from each other right now. Mm. And if the internet goes down for half a second, we're all up in arms like, oh, I can't believe this. And like, <laughs> you know, like the amazingness of technology. Yeah. And First world so, problems, isn't it? Yeah, they are first world problems for sure. And so I think as we are moving forward, the reason that people still default to command and control leadership is because, I'll just say it, they're lazy. Mm. It's a lot easier. And I'll give you an example. Because I reckon, and I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of what we talk about around leadership comes down, you can look at a lot of the same analogies in parenting, right? Because in some ways, what you're trying to do is foster the growth of people. In this case, it's your children. So I have two kids. My kids are now, my son is 17, my daughter's 14. So I'm going to take you back a few years. My son must have been about four or five years old and he was going to preschool. And I, it was my day to bring him to preschool. And, you know, generally I was trying to get him out of the house to get him there on time. And I know that it takes X amount of, you know, it took me, let's say, 15 minutes to get him dressed, get his shoes on and go. All right. Well, on this particular day, it's raining. And if you know little kids and rain boots and rain <laughs> gear and rain, everything, it took a lot longer. And as we are going and I'm seeing we're getting later and later. I'm the one getting stressed and I'm the one who's starting to raise my voice. Like, come on, Alex, we got to go. Come on, get your, get your, get your coat on, get your boots. Come on, we got to go. And before you know it, and I'm getting upset. And again, this is all my stuff. This has nothing to do with him, mm -hmm. except for the fact that I'm now heightened voice. Let's call it what it is. I'm yelling at him basically. Get, <laughs> let's get going. It's not, not my finest parenting moment. I will confess. <laughs> We've so been before there. you We've know it, this. <laughs> I have a little boy who is bawling in tears and I'm just like doing what I can. I like him picking him up in a ball and basically scooting him to the car. It felt like one of the big epic parenting failures, right? It just felt terrible. And I called my wife to kind of debrief the whole thing. And she said, great. So did you notice it was raining? Yeah. Did you budget any extra time to put, the t put his stuff on? Nope. So here it was. So why didn't I do it? Because I was lazy, right? I didn't, when I say lazy is I wasn't thinking big picture. I wasn't being systemic and strategic. And I think as leaders, we have to realize, wait, we can't just say, you got to do this because I said so, because that's the shortcut and the shortcuts don't work. And so thinking about the people that you would want to lead, and I think ultimately followership is a choice, right? Because the people can show up, but what you need them to show up for isn't just to do a job. I mean, pretty much these days, anything that a human is doing involves some kind of creative problem solving, right? They have to clarify what's the problem, come up with a bunch of ideas, pick the best idea and implement the solution. Everything else is being automated, right? By a computer program or an app or an algorithm. Software is doing all of that repetitive manual work. You've, you've already offshored that stuff. Mm. And so what you need humans to do is be human. And so create conditions where humans can thrive and understand 
what are the conditions where humans can thrive? And that they need safety, they need a certain amount of energy, they need purpose, like we talked about before, they need to take ownership and autonomy and have some freedom to how they do their work. If you try to just do as I say, you are setting up yourself with a massive recipe for failure. Absolutely. Do you think that it's laziness or the lack of know-how? No, I mean, it's both, right? So, I mean, when I say lazy, that's sort of a catch-all for I am too in the weeds. I am too head down, too, too much blinders on my head, too myopic to actually step up and actually understand my role. You know, as we said before, is my role is not to be the high performer. My role is to facilitate high performance in others. Mm. This isn't about me doing more. It's about me doing differently. And so I think really what it comes down to is people have to recognize uh, laziness is, I'll, we'll say laziness is defaulting to those old patterns that we mm. talked about before, the high performer patterns like, oh, this is what I would do if I were you. I would just push through this. Well, you're not me. And just telling me to do that that way isn't going to work. The the old school leaders, so you you're obviously work as a consultant, freelancer, the whole piece. You go in and you, and you yeah. with leaders and coach them and not only on, on how to become a better leader but how to build and create better cultures. Yes. If one of those old school um, leaders came to you, and we've all been there, <laughs> where they've come to you and they said, Alan, I want to, I want to change the culture within my business. Everyone here complains. Everyone else, it's everyone else's fault. Go and do Alan and fix this place and I want it done in six months. Great. First yeah. question, would you accept that as a piece of work? <laughs> and second, would what would you do if you were to accept that as a piece of work? Great. Well, before I would, I, at this point, we're not even close to saying yes or no. <laughs> I, I would ask a whole ton of clarifying questions up front. So when you say the culture is broken or not working, tell me what do you mean by that? Right? And then I would also be listening to their language as they're describing it. Because the way you just briefly described that, Daniel, there is what I was hearing was there was a lot of culture of blame. It's mm-hmm. like, they're the problem, they're the fault. Okay, if someone's bringing me in, they're in a position of leadership, of authority, of influence. Great, what are you doing? What are the norms you've created? What are the norms that you've tolerated and accepted to create this culture? Because every system, and I'll steal this line from per, a slight variation from Peter Drucker, every system is perfectly designed for the results it achieves. So you know what? Your culture is perfect for what you're getting. The question is, if you want different results, what do you need to change upstream? And what are you willing to do first? And are you willing to do the hard work of being the ambassador, being the model, and being the champion to change this culture? And, you know, because look, everybody wants to change something, whether it's on a personal level, I want to lose 10 kilos and, you know, whatever, you know, uh, run, a, run a five minute mile. It's like, it's great that you want that, but what are you willing to do and put in the work to get the result? And ultimately it comes down to work. And there are ways to do this that do work and there are ways that don't. But I can tell you just that, you know, basically I've seen this happen many, too many times, throwing money at a problem is not gonna fix it. Um, telling other people that they need to fix it is not gonna fix it. Um, usually what it takes on a certain level somewhere is there's got to be a conversation that has enough vulnerability where people come to what we'll call, one of my colleagues, Tasha Yurik, who wrote a wonderful book called Insight. She calls these 
wake-up calls, right? So if you think about, and I assume in Australia, if you drive to the side of the road, do you, we call them rumble strips. Do you have those there? Where you hit the side of the road and like the road, the tires. Yeah. Yes. We do. Yeah. Would you call them rumbles? What do you Not call rumble them? Not rumble strips. Uh, I couldn't even tell you. But the road verge potentially is what we call Road verge. Yeah, we call them rumble strips, yeah, right? So yeah. the idea is that the rumble strip is feedback. It's a wake-up call. Yeah. And the thing is, a lot of people never change until they have their hit bottom moment. Some people call it, if I may quote, the oh shit moment. Oh shit. <laughs> like, like, like we can't do this this way anymore, right? Yeah. And so the question is, how bottom do you need to hit before you have your personal wake-up call, whether that's organizationally, personally, professionally, et cetera? And if you're really serious about changing a culture, you have to think, what am I willing to do? And not only what am I willing to do, what am I willing to no longer tolerate and stop doing? And what am I willing? Because, you know, that means having some courage, sticking your neck out, potentially being unpopular. And it's tough because, you know, we're human and... So I've talked to so many people like, well, I would speak up, but it's, you know, it's, it's a career limiting move. And again, how many organizations say we want our people to be innovative, but if you look at the reward structures, people are much more likely to stick with the status quo because there's no real penalty for doing the same old, same old. Whereas if you try something different and it fails, that could be a career limiting move. So we have to really ask, what are we doing, for example, as leaders to embrace failure, quote unquote failure, right? As learning and lessons. And some cultures do that way better than others. And some people say they do that, but they don't do it at all. So this is tricky. You've asked a really complicated, interesting question. Well, it's kind of a, a trick question because first and foremost, those old school type leaders wouldn't come to someone to help fix the culture. No. no. <laughs> so, but, but in the same process, what I'm hearing in that, in your response there was, was really about, I mean, self-awareness as a leader and yeah. growing that level of self-awareness. There are some leaders who are very self-aware, can take on constructive feedback and learn from it and grow and improve and do the above. There are some that are just so oblivious to their own um, or their own position and what it actually means to be a leader and then how they as a leader can influence it, right? We all know it all starts at the top, right? If the, if the leader yeah. is leading by example, then we generally see that ripple down as a rule of thumb throughout the, the organisation. How do or what are some of you, what's some of your advice for, for leaders in particular who where can we improve on our self-awareness and how, you know, what are some sort of tr tricks and tips and, and ways that we can improve on sure. being more self-aware and more vulnerable leader? Yeah. Well, I think you've named something so important here around self-awareness, you know, so if anyone here listening has studied emotional intelligence, you'll know the basic foundational competency of emotional intelligence is self-awareness, which is the ability to reflect inwards and go, hmm, what am I thinking? What was I feeling? How am I acting? Some basic things like that, which, like you said, many people don't have. So I think the first step in this process is the willingness to go, I've got room for improvement and I want <laughs> to improve, right? That's numbers. And that's, in fact, that is the biggest step. You know, we have a line in the coaching business, which is you can't coach someone who's not coachable. Mm. You know, just like I don't think you can lead someone who's not leadable. And so the first thing is if you really want to develop yourself, you have to be open to changing, which is, you know, shifting from this we might call a fixed mindset, whereas this belief is like, I am who I am and I can't change versus a growth mindset, which is 
all these are skills and talents, including emotional intelligence and self-awareness. These are things that I can learn and develop. And for whatever reason, I've not yet developed them. I want to do so. So going back to your question, what is the first place to go? What's the tip? What's the first place to do that? Ask other people for feedback. Because, and I love this quote, this comes from Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize. He's a psychologist who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. And he says, humans are blind to our own blindness, right? And if you think about how we are notoriously biased. So how you think you show up is not how you show up. It's how you think you show up. Much more useful is to get a whole bunch of data points, and maybe that's a 360-degree assessment of some kind with a number of people, so you get a, more than a sample size of one, is you know, getting a series of questions. You know, How do I show up in this way in terms of connection or communication or collaboration? And some simple questions like, do I show up on time to meetings? Do you feel like you are listened to rather than spoken to? Do we end meetings with follow-up action steps? Like You can get some real feedback. What else would you share? Whatever the assessment is, now you have some data points to go to. And also, by the way, when you are going and trying to, and you can do this formally with an actual 360-degree assessment, or you can just ask people informally and say, hey, I want to get better. What are some things that you think I'm doing well? And what do you think things I could be working on to make things even better in the future? Notice by saying even better in the future, I've not said that gives people permission to talk about it as opposed cool. to what do I do poorly? Because people, I don't, especially if you're my boss, like, I don't know if I'm going to answer that question. What could I be doing even better? Great. And make sure that when you're getting your sample size of people who give you feedback, don't just ask your mom. Don't just ask <laughs> your, your puppy. Like ask people who will share with you the unvarnished truth because that is where the gold is, right? Again, if you think about what makes the best fertilizer, yes, you know, right? So go to that place and get all the great fertilizer because that's what's going to help you grow. Um, you want to hear the good, the bad, and especially the ugly because like, oh gosh, I tell you, I mean, I'll give you an example, Daniel. I mean, earlier in my career, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, do we put colleagues or customers focused? So I used to facilitate these large training programs for, you know, literally sometimes over 2,000 people. And I'd have a team of support facilitators working with me, sometimes up to 70 or 80 support facilitators. And I was, in some ways, the manager on duty trying to, like, basically lead them. But my focus, especially at the beginning, was so client-centric that I would literally, like, just, like go there, go there, do this, do that. And, like, and people, and I got the feedback is, you know, um, Linda doesn't want to work with you anymore because she finishes your sessions. She's in tears. Mm. And, 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 of course, I had never seen that. I'm like, me? How could I? No, I didn't mean that. It's like, you know what? Linda was in tears. I did something to create that. I have to own that some percentage of what's going on in Linda's experience is due to me. Mm. And so I can de- I can deny it. I can justify it. I can blame somebody else. I can say, you don't understand. I'm in the client-facing business. That's my job. That comes with the territory. But that doesn't solve anything. And so hearing that, and not just from Linda, but hearing that from numerous people, that for me was a wake-up call. That was my rumble strip moment of, wow, that is not, look, I'm trying to teach all these people these leadership principles, and I can't even practice them with my own team. Part of me was like, that's pathetic. Hmm. So that was the wake-up call for me, and like, what can I do differently? And, you know, and as one of my colleagues said, about six months after I got some feedback, said, you okay? Because it's like you got a brain transplant. Like your whole personality on sessions is so different now. You're way more relaxed. Because I realized people were picking off my emotional affect. And if I was coming in stressed and uptight and intense, that was contagious on the rest of the team because the leader sets the tone. 
So these are the kind of things that we want to be aware of and do something about. So the number one tip, seek feedback from other people. Mm. Absolutely. Now, does that get wrapped up in, yeah, I mean, in, in the book you, you spoke really intensely and, and quite a fair bit detail on empathy as a leader. So when, when we're seeking feedback, is it about how do we become much more empathetic? Also, sorry, as a precursor to seeking feedback, do we need to create that relationship first? Yeah. You know, you know at, at what point can you start you know, asking for feedback, knowing yeah. that the, the, the trust might not be there? Yeah, exactly. That's such a good point to bring up, which is, you know, any of these tools, tips, techniques taken out of context mm. can actually create more harm than good. Yeah. And feedback being one, great, I want some feedback. Give me some feedback. Yeah. Time out, time out. Yeah. Slow down, bucko. Think about it, right? So what we want to make sure is that we have built relationships on the basis of credibility, of trust, and empathy. And that, you know, my best definition of empathy is showing people that you care about them and understand how they feel. And so those are, and I'll borrow Stephen Covey's wonderful phrase on this, that is a result of deposits you make in the emotional bank account that you have with somebody else, right? And so over time, showing people that you care about them and as people, not as just employee X, you know, brand manager Y, you actually care about them as a human being, you wanna make sure that you are putting those deposits in early and consistently, often over time, because for feedback to really be effective, you want that free flow of relationships so that people feel that they can be honest with you because the level of trust is so established, they know that you actually want to hear it. And if you shortchange that empathy building process, you're gonna have people go through the motions of this. And like anything else, it will fall flat. Absolutely. Is the critical piece in empathy the ability to listen and put the ego aside and walk in other people's shoes. I mean, it is a behavior that is not very prevalent <laughs> in many no. leaders. What is, the, what is your opinion on becoming more empathic as a leader? Yeah, there's a couple of big things. Like, I mean, people hear it and they're like, oh, empathy, show people you understand them and care how they feel. And most leaders go like, oh, that, that makes sense. Like, get it, got it, good, mm. move on. I, yeah. I'll do that. I, I do that. Yeah. I mean well. Like <laughs> that's great. And the research would show, I found a wonderful uh, piece of data on this one. So this was uh, a study that was done by Business Solver. And they found, they asked people, both CEOs and employees in an organization, how many of you believe that empathy is important in the organization, right? 93% of people, of course, say, of course it's important. And they said to all the employees, and that included the CEOs, by the way. And then they went, all right, um, how many of you in your organizations believe that your CEOs, these same CEOs, are empathetic? 51%. Only fit, right? So there's this massive gap between what people intend, I want to be an empath mm. empathetic leader, and what they're doing. So if empathy is certainly easier understood than practiced, what are the things that get in the way? And my research, and I write about more of these in the book, but I'll give you my top two barriers to being empathetic. Again, if we define empathy as showing people that you understand them and care how they feel, in order to do that, number one thing you need to do is you need to take 
time and slow down and park your own agenda and put it to the side and take a little time. And like you said, Daniel, and listen. And really listen with no expectation of this being an agenda item to check off of your list, right? And the challenge, of course, is we don't live in a world that moves at the speed of humanity. We live in a technological world that moves at the speed of light. The fact that you can have 300 emails fill up your inbox in an hour or less, which has happened to you, I'm sure, and to me. <laughs> so our work world feels like it moves at the speed of light. Now, look, I am not here to poo-poo the idea of trying to drive for business results. In fact, many organizations have driving for results that might be listed as one of their core competencies, or maybe it's bias for action. I am not anti-action. I'm not anti-results whatsoever. However, there is a time and a place, depending on what's going on, where you're going to need to slow down, right? You're going to need to listen and actually put people and relationships before tasks. And we can't always be in task mode. And so part of leadership wisdom is knowing there's a time and a place to go fast and there's a time and a place to go slow. And what great leaders do is they have the wisdom to know which mode to be in at what time. Mm. Uh, one of my colleagues who studied growth mindset with Carol Dweck calls this the difference between being in the learning zone and the performance zone. When we are in task performance mode, the fact is when you slow down to get into the learning or relationship mode, you're not going to achieve as much, but you have to recognize what I'm doing right now is I'm investing, right? It's just like, you can't be harvesting results from the, just use the farming analogy. Mm. You can't be harvesting 12 months out of the year. There's a time where you have to plant and you have to invest in what you're doing to cultivate, to fertilize, to nurture. And human beings are organic matter, right? We have to do that. So that's number one, it's speed. Number two, big thing that gets in the way of empathy is and you know there is the fact is human beings with all of our emotional lives we're pretty messy let's face it numbers are a lot neater and cleaner and tidier it's funny it's amazing to me how many ceos come from cfo backgrounds or accounting backgrounds mm. right it seems like there's an eye for business and i think there's a reason that we love numbers in the business world because they are so crisp and clean and tidy the fact is they're consistent every single day i can guarantee you that the number eight is always one more than seven and always one less than nine. <laughs> How are you today, eight? I'm eight. Mm -hmm. I, I was always eight. I will always be eight. How are you today, Daniel? God knows what you're going to say. <laughs> Who knows what's going on? What's happening? We don't know. And so a lot of people, especially people who have not been comfortable, and especially people who have the strengths around the analysis or the financial side, when it comes to the people side, they are so outside of their comfort zone so they downplay the importance of it. Maybe if we just pretend like it doesn't exist, we won't have to see it. <laughs> Which is why for generations, and I don't know if you ever heard this growing up, but I certainly did in some of my first jobs, where people said, oh, feelings at work? We don't do that here. See, here we have a check your feelings at the door policy. You don't <laughs> actually bring your feelings to work because this is work. Now, what I love about millennials and Gen Z, they've totally said, what do you mean? That's ridiculous. And it is ridiculous because if you stop and think about it, you cannot check your feelings at the door. Mm. What was, how could you? What you end up doing instead, which is what many people do, is they suppress their feelings at the door. And unfortunately, and there's been lots of research on this, most recently, the one that I saw was some studies by Deloitte, 
turns out that 61% of people, and this is in North America, so I can't speak for Australia, but I would think that the numbers would be somewhat similar. 61% of people feel the need to cover their identities in some ways when they come to work, that they don't feel safe actually being fully themselves, that because they somehow will be ostracized. And you think about it, anytime you've shown up anywhere where you've had to put on that figurative mask, it is exhausting. Mm. It is drink because you can't be yourself. And so oh, as a leader- hear every day, people saying, I'm a different person at work than what I am in my real life, you know? Yeah, it's common yeah I was speak. just- I was just talking to a fellow coach yesterday who's trying to move out of the corporate coaching world. She's like, you know, I just feel like, you know, working with corporate clients, I just feel like I can't bring my sense of humanity and like my fullness. And frankly, I think, I mean, that's what's needed today. And actually the corporate world in my experience is more receptive to that than ever before because mm -hmm. we're realizing, you know, the rules of the game have changed. And, you know, you look at what is it gonna take to engage to attract, to retain um, new people, recruit them. I mean, I'm sure you're dealing with this in Australia too. We're calling it here. It's the great resignation mm -hmm. in the U.S. You know, we've had more than 4 million people resigning from their jobs every month since April. And the fact is the rules are changing. The values are changing. People are not willing to put up with a lousy work experience in the way they might have even two years ago. And so this means that human-centered organizations and human-centered leaders are in a moment of such a competitive advantage in the workplace. Yeah, you raised so many good points. I think the the CFO becoming the CEO is is definitely something that we hear a lot of here in Australia. It's almost yep. to the point where you know one of our like our key client market is the the chief people officer, if that's the if that's sure. the right term, or the head of people sure. and culture, or something like that. Sure. Um, and you'd almost categorically say, I'd almost categorically say that every single one of them that I speak to knows that they're really that that is really not the path to becoming the, the CEO. You have to move into ops or you have to operations or so yeah. it's it's really strange. But then as the world is moving forward toward it, towards this more human centric design, it'd be interesting to see if that does it does change. But I want to go back to your point about the growth, you know, Carol Dweck's learning and then your colleague who talked about learning, there's a time for learning and harvesting and then there's a time for, for actually producing and, and, you know, actually getting shit done, right? Yeah. Can you do both in tandem? Can you, can like for me personally, I have, I believe I'm, I'm able to get stuff done and, and move it at, at a particular speed. But every day I am doing some sort of learning. I am reading. I am listening to podcasts. I am um, working on myself, assessing myself. I'm doing some sort of meditation, whatever it might be, mindfulness, journaling, all the above, right, yeah. as a way to continue to improve. Is it is it better to do one and specifically work on one, like one day a week and, and you know, six days a week, go hard? Or like what is your thoughts? Not necessarily. So, I mean, I think you just kind of have proven the rule here, Daniel, which is the fact is, can you do both? In the, I would say in the millisecond moment, you cannot do both. Mm -hmm. However, at the same time, right? If you think about it, just in terms of just multitasking, you can't be doing something and then learning about it. But however, what you can do is you can set an intention of, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And it's, let's say it takes me an hour or 10 minutes, doesn't matter, any length of time. 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a little time on the back end reflecting how did it go, what did I learn, how can I apply what I learned and do it differently next time, right? So, which is all that whole self-awareness piece. Now, there are, it sounds like what you've already done, Daniel, is you have already built in rituals and habits into your life where you're consistently learning and doing other things. I think that, so it becomes, rather than an either or, it's a both and. It's like, yeah. how can you basically embrace the idea of learning and performance because what I have found is if let's say for example you want to do something and then take a little bit of time to reflect on what you've done to learn from it to do it better and to improve from it the actual amount of reflection time doesn't have to be very big at all really what it comes down to is being intentional so one of the things that is a big part of my business these days is I run this 30-day leadership challenge where we actually have people intentionally going through for 30 days, just for a few minutes per day, like literally five minutes a day, setting an intention. That is, how are you going to show up today to be a better connector or communicator or collaborator? It's all done via app, right? So it's all asynchronous. And then at the end of the day, they write, what are three wins you had from today? And the wins can be big, they can be small, they can be personal, they can be professional. And just taking those five minutes a day of the self-reflection and what we're doing with the app is we're giving them external prompts to build a new habit because most people on their own, some of us have a journaling practice, but if you don't, it's really helpful to have someone say, here, write in this journal, here's a pen, go, do it. Um, So what we're doing is we're creating a structure for people to create their own prompts to become self-reflective. I think ultimately where we're all, what would be great if we could try to get there is how can we develop rituals of self-reflection, self-improvement so that we can ultimately become more effective over time. I love it. I want to jump into the communication piece. There was a very large uh, contingent of, of, of your writing in, that, in the book, um, Cracking the Leadership Code, about communication. There is something that I've, um, I've been uh, really pushing for, for, for many, many years now, and, and you mentioned it in your book, is don't you know, treat others the way you want to be treated, but treat others the way they want to be treated. And you, bought, and you actually um, reinvigorated the... the the Carnegie piece of uh, giving the fish the worm, which was, uh, yeah. I loved your uh, analogy. So for those listening in the book, uh, Alan talks about he loves strawberries and cream, but when he wants to go fishing, he doesn't put strawberries and cream on the end of the hook. He has to put put a worm on the end of the hook. So it is, it is a really excellent um, analogy. Can you talk to me about communication and our techniques as human beings, and you used the word lazy before, and I actually believe we as a human race have become really lazy with our communication. There is this, the word should, uh, they should just know what I'm talking about. There is this expectation that everyone's on the same page. It's, 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 It's the expectation that people are seeing it from, you know, or perceiving the same scenario. Uh, We've also had a previous person on the podcast who talks about um, you know, thinking about imagine you're on a street corner, right, where one and there's a car accident in the middle of this T section, and you're on one street corner, and 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 the other person is on another street corner. You both see the same thing, but from different angles. Um, can you talk to us really about how come there is this perception that people should know what we are talking about, and how do we get better at that? Yeah, so communicating well is so much harder than it looks, right? And so the research on this is is staggering um, around 
just how much misunderstanding and confusion goes on. Uh, there was a study in the UK of 4,000 employees, um, and they found that, you know, that they spend an average of 40 minutes per day trying to clarify unclear and confusing instructions. 40 minutes every day, five days a week. I mean, that, that's a lot of time yes. just to clarify what's not making sense. So, so that made me think as I kept seeing, you know, why does it seem that confusion is more common than clarity? Which obviously it is. It goes back to the whole idea of if misunderstanding is the default setting, why is that? It's because our human brain is notoriously biased. And as you described with a four-intersection car accident, basically the problem is we live in our own heads and we have a perfect view, right? We see living through our own heads, experiencing our own experiences 24-7, 365 is what we know. However, nobody else has a seat in our own brain. If At best, they are sitting way up in the balcony you know, behind a pole and they get a very limited view. But we're like, why can't you see this? It's so clear and obvious to me. And so there's a number of different biases uh, which get in the way. Uh, the biggest of them is called the projection bias. And I'll give you a, I'll tell you a story that really brings this to life. This is not a work, it didn't happen at work, but it's a classic story. I'm sure many people can relate to this one. So I, I live in Massachusetts. And uh, for the story, you need to know that our house does not have a garage, but it has a driveway that is only wide enough for one car to drive up to it. Towards the end, it actually comes up to the house, it widens out so you can park two cars back to back, or side to side, I should say. And so my wife and I, we're a two car family. And so that means when guests come to visit us and they pull their car behind our car in the driveway, they're effectively blocking both the cars in because it narrows out. So anyway, a few years ago, we had our friends Pam and Charlie came to visit us in Massachusetts from Washington, D.C., and Pam had parked their car behind our cars, which is not a big problem because when I have to leave, I just say, can you move your car? And we do a little car juggling and shuffling, and then I'm on my way. So I, they were visiting, and then it was actually the last day of their visit. I had to leave to go to the airport to travel to go and, and do a keynote speech. And I said, Pam, could you please move your car? And I need to go to the airport. And she said, where do you want me to park? I said, just go and park your car in front of the house. She said, you sure? I said, yeah, please go, go ahead, park your car in front of the house. You want me to do what? Just park your car in front of the house. So Pam stops and looks at me kind of funny, and she gets this loud voice. She says, you want me to park my car in front of the house. Is that right? And I'm thinking, I've just said this three <laughs> times. Like, what is your flipping problem, Miss Pam? <laughs> right? And I said, yeah. And she says, okay, I will go and park my car in front of your house. And she goes off. I'm like, what is up with Pam? So I get my suitcase and I put it in the trunk of my car. And I get in the car and I back, you know, I put it into reverse and I start to slowly back out, looking in the mirrors of the car. I'm looking, checking the side mirror, checking the rearview mirror. And I'm starting to back down the driveway. And then all of a sudden, something weird catches my eye <laughs> coming back. I'm like, what, what, what is that? What is it? What is that? I realize it's Pam's car. <laughs> and you know where she's parked her car, Daniel? She has parked her car in front of the house. I mean, literally as close to the house as you could get, as in on the flower beds, on the lawn in front of the house. And as I'm looking at this, I'm like, what the hell was she thinking? Isn't it obvious that when I say park your car in front of the house, the only thing I could possibly mean is park your car on the curb in front of the house. But Pam had taken my words literally. Like That's why she was doing this whole weird back and forth. And those were my warning signs that I completely missed because I'm just thinking, what's going on? So this is the projection bias. And psychologists yeah. define the projection bias as when you unconsciously assume other people 
have the same thoughts that you are? How could Pam be thinking anything other than what I'm thinking? Because that's what I mean. That's must be. And so the projection bias is alive and well and living at work every single day. And I'll give you a couple of examples of how you know it's happening. It happens to you. It happens to people you work with. So next time you catch yourself saying, well, I sent the email. They know, they need, they know what to do. It's like you sent an email doesn't mean squat. Sending an email means you sent an email. Whether or not people read it, whether they understood it, whether they acted on it, totally different. Or doesn't senior leadership know what a stupid process this is? No, they don't. You do, but no one else does. <laughs> so anytime you catch yourself starting a sentence with things like, well, don't they, or they should, or why can't they, guess what? That is the projection bias. And it is rampant in the world because, again, it makes life easier if we don't feel like we have to translate and speak other people's languages. I don't know if you ever had the experience of learning a different language and going to that country for a while and trying to speak in that language all day. But by the end of the day, I am exhausted, mm. right? Because like, ah, uh, so we don't want to. We want to go, you know what? I think you speak my language or at least close enough. Let's just go. Hence the laziness of this whole thing. So that is how we are wired. And we're not gonna change our human neural tendencies anytime soon. So that means that we have to be vigilant as leaders. And I think this is a big part of our roles is to serve as a translator, to accommodate all these different languages that are going on at the same time. Yes, yeah, spot on. And, um, and shout out to Pam, if you are listening. <laughs> yeah, Pam. Well, love you. Love you mean it, Pam. Love you. I'm, I'm just, I am interested, and this is a silly question, but were the flowers okay? <laughs> some were, some were not. The yeah. flowers that got crushed by the tires were not okay. Yeah, and, and, and we see that, you know, and it's not only at work that you see, I mean, I have that... Um, scenario happen every single day in my life with my wife right of course <laughs> of course this is classic yeah absolute expectation that i know exactly what she's talking about how do you know yeah. how do you walk well for me my wife always says to me how do you walk in the room and not see the mess <laughs> it's like how do you walk in the room and see the mess like i i'm you know it's, yeah i know exactly it is crazy well it's also it's also this gets back to culture right because like our we are the product of our cultures and mm. like your wife or someone else could be my me or my wife or anyone is if you've been told this that becomes a value to you and also there probably was some kind of emotional trigger point along the way that if you don't see that mess therefore you become some kind of a bad person and therefore, there's this huge stock. So the fact that you can just walk in the room and not just not see the mess, but be so nonchalant about it, Daniel. Like, who are, you know, it's like, what planet are you from, right? This is, the, this is the challenge. And so we have to realize different values for different people. I mean, I'll give you an example from my own marriage, slightly different, right? So my wife grew up in Texas. Her background is white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, mm -hmm. um, where it was very soft-spoken. You never raised your voice anywhere in terms of like, if you were upset with somebody, calm, measured, collected. If you can't already tell me, I come from a family of New York Jews, right? And so it's like, if you're not shouting, you're not getting heard. And so it was like one of these things, the first time she heard me, it's like, you're screaming. I'm like, I'm not screaming. What are you talking about? I'm fine. You want to hear screaming? I'll show you. Like, oh my gosh. And so it's one of these things that, you know, we come from very different cultural styles. We come from very different conflict styles. We've had to work through these things over time. Yeah, I hear you loud and clear. I come from an Italian family, so if you're not the loudest, you're not getting heard. It's yeah, it is yeah. very, very much. How do how do we build 
a culture of great communication then? So great question. So if we think as a culture is the result of the sum of the behaviors in the culture. So some of the things we want to do is we want to make sure that we are putting certain stop gaps in place to make sure that we are minimizing misunderstanding and misunderstanding. And by the way, those are two different things, by the way. I'll mm-hmm. talk about these. So misunderstanding is when you said 18, I heard 80. Oh, wait, you said 18? I thought you said 80. No, no, eight. got it. Okay, that's, that's misunderstanding. That's easy to catch, relatively. Misunderstanding is... I'm having a meeting and you're in the meeting, Daniel. And I'm like, you know, we're thinking about going and going to this different strategy with these customers. And you're thinking in your mind, I don't think it's a really good idea. But for whatever reasons, maybe it's psychological safety, you don't speak up. And so that never gets heard because you never speak it. That is way more troubling. And that, I think, is actually the bigger issue that's going on around communication is the fact that there's a lot of missed understanding. Mm. So all of which to say is what are things that we can do? So the first thing to avoid misunderstanding would be empathy, right? To, to build that relationship, to build the trust so people feel safe to speak up and share their input. The next thing as a leader around that is to make sure, if, especially if I'm meeting in teams, let's say I have a team of eight people. I can't just have two or three people who are speaking up constantly. I have to go to the quiet ones and say, Daniel, we haven't heard from you. What are your thoughts on this? And making sure or... Also, some people need 24 hours to reflect on something before they share their input, particularly introverts or reflective processors. So if I'm showing up to meetings and saying, hey, team, what does everybody think about this right now? I'm not giving those introverts the time to reflect. I'm shortchanging them. So I may want to put that question out. We're going to be talking about this tomorrow. Please chew on this, digest on this for 24 hours, and please come with your thoughts. So this is leadership. This is thinking about that. So that's one thing we can do to start to eliminate missed understanding. Mm. Another thing that we can do that's really useful that I think it doesn't happen nearly enough, I call it asking for a receipt. If you think about this concept of receipts, so receipts, why do we have receipts in life? They're proof of a completed transaction. Mm. And in general, we use them in commerce. When you buy something, you can get a receipt. And the more important the transaction, the more you want to make sure you buy a receipt, you get a receipt. So for example, you go to your local convenience store and you buy a candy bar that costs you 85 cents, you may say, I don't need the receipt. It's fine. However, I can guarantee you, you and I will not buy a house and not get a receipt for that house, <laughs> right? True. Because it is important. So here's the thing. How many of us have meetings where we've discussed a whole bunch of stuff? We may have even made some decisions and then the meeting is over like, great. All right, everyone. Goodbye. Great meeting. Thank you. As opposed to before we finish, say, hey, can we do a receipt check. Let's just go around. What is everyone committing to? What are the actions we're doing? Um, let's do some clarification around our commitments. And so if you say, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to cascade this out to my team. and We're going to, like you are. Oh, I thought I was going to do that. So suddenly we have this opportunity to speak now and catch that stuff before we all leave the centralized meeting and then take whatever next subsequent actions might be. So by taking that time and asking for a receipt, we can then clarify and make sure that we avoid any potential misunderstandings. Because look, if we don't do that, when it, and I'm sure you've experienced this, Daniel, where you have the meeting and the meeting ends, and then maybe if it's in person, you go out to the water cooler and you and I are out by the water, like, what did you decide? Who, who decided? Who's doing what? Right? And we have those like eight meetings after the meetings yeah. with eight different versions yeah. of reality. And because also people feel safer doing it one-on-one as opposed to speaking up. So as leaders, we need to create an environment 
where people feel safe speaking up all the time. So these are some main tenets to being able to reduce and minimize and eliminate misunderstanding and misunderstanding so you can have more effective communication in your work environment. Amazing, amazing. Um, I really want to just ask, it wouldn't be... I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy with myself if I, if I didn't ask you a question about entrepreneurship and leadership. Sure. Um, yeah. The two, the two. Is it impossible for a great leader to focus on rapid growth and leadership if you're in that entrepreneurship phase, you're in a startup phase, it's about rapid growth, rapid growth, rapid growth. Can you bring your best leadership to the party as well? Oh, I think absolutely you can. I think it's a question of what you're trying to get accomplished in the time frame with the resources that you have. It's a question of size and, and scale and scope of what you're doing. So if you're looking for rapid growth, I mean, the fact is, you know, I work and I coach, I'm, in, I'm coaching a startup founder of a marketing agency right now. It's a small agency. And I'm also coaching some Fortune 500 executives in the aviation industry. And the way in which they look at the world is completely different. However, because the nature of their issues and how the layers of things that have to happen, like in the, in the big, large company, there's all sorts of layers and politics that have to get navigated. Whereas for the startup, she's got a team of six or seven people. She can go, go, go. I think what we need to do to think of what is best leadership, I think what is your tolerance for get started and figure it out as you go? Because I think, you know, one of the key things that the world affords us today, particularly with technology and data analytics, is to get a sense of, okay, you try something, is it working? Like, let's say you want to try a new content strategy piece. How are your followers responding? Are you getting new followers? Are your followers buying from you, et cetera? And start to notice and try, see what works. If it's working, do some more of it. If it's not working, shift and pivot and try something different. Those are still involve leadership. Right, it just might be more action oriented and maybe less reflection oriented because hopefully the impacts and there's maybe a more forgiving environment in let's say a startup environment around we're figuring this out as opposed to we've got these structures set in stone already. And so changing them is a lot more work, but I think the principles definitely still apply. So there's two key entrepreneurs of the world that were proven to not be if you read all their biographies and whatnot proven to probably not be the best leaders we're talking about elon musk and we're talking about steve jobs uh, right? i knew we we're gonna get to steve jobs if you as soon as said that yeah Correct, steve jobs right? always, and, yes and so and i think that's the the point i'm trying to make here is that they are super successful if you're talking from a, a visionary point of view. I mean, they are both absolute visionaries. They wanted to change the world yeah. and they did. Uh, sure. The way they got there might not be the best from a leadership point of view, but from a success point of view, from an outcome of cash <laughs> created, yeah, they have they've hit all hit all the you know the jackpots, right? Exactly. Do you think that people are mimicking this approach because they believe that is the formula? And we're talking about codes. <laughs> Right? Do you believe that they, they, they're mimicking this approach because they believe that is the code to success? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I think that's what people are doing. I mean, if that's what you're doing, and I think we should be really cautious when we talk about Steve Jobs being successful and Elon Musk, we're being successful on certain metrics, you yeah. know? And look, easy for me to say I'm not a billionaire. 
yet, um, <laughs> all of what you say. One but minute. like, and this is, and but the thing is, also our cultural standpoints, you know, and our signifiers are that means you're successful. Like basically, when we say someone's successful, what we're saying is that they are financially successful. That's true. Now, now again, I heard stories about people who work with Steve Jobs about him being a massive screamer and shouter. And if you were on the receiving end of that, and you were to the point where this is horrible, and like you ended up quitting your job at Apple because of that, would you call Steve Jobs a success? I would say he was a financial success, maybe in spite of these things. So this is why I think, you know, this is why when I coach people, I'm very cautious to give advice because what worked for me may or may not work for you. And again, we love shortcuts. Like, just tell me, what do I need to do? And then I'll do it. Well, what works for Steve Jobs works for Steve Jobs. What works for Elon Musk works for Elon Musk. It may or may not work for you. And, you know, the question becomes, and this is, I've, I've asked this question many times around Steve Jobs, is, is Steve Jobs successful because of some of the way he worked? You know, when I'm thinking about how he dealt with other people and kind of his patience or impatience and that. Or was he successful in spite of that? And how much more successful? No one asks that question. Mm-hmm. Right? How much more successful might he been had he had these other skills? And so where I come from is the sample size and the data. What we have found is number one thing that is going to recruit, engage, and retain employees is do they feel cared for by their immediate supervisor? The data says this, right? You don't have to, you can look at it yourself and like, think about your own experience. Like, do you, are you more likely to stay and work at a place where you feel cared for than not? That sounds really soft and fuzzy, but it's true. The data supports this. So for me, I traffic in probabilities more than anecdotes. You can take any person who's the exception to the rule, right? So there's exceptions to every rule. Like, mm. look what they, but look what that did. That person lost weight and all they ate was ice cream. Great, <laughs> go for it. If that was worked for you, go for it. So for me, the universal principles of connection, communication, and collaboration, and by the way, I didn't just sit down and write those, like these three things all start with C and they rhyme. Let me write a book about this. <laughs> this all came out of literally hundreds of stories of being in the field and then reviewing the stories and going, what were the common themes that kept emerging? And the common three themes were connection, communication, collaboration. So the book was organically built on the back of field research. It wasn't just an author sitting in a closet who doesn't deal with people. So I am really convicted and passionate about this idea that these principles work for a reason. And I try to find the research and the science to support them as well. And so I'd say, go for, you know, life's an experiment. See what works and change your approach. There's no one right way to do this, which is why we said, going back to your first question, can you crack the code? It isn't your code to crack. It's Hmm. the people that you lead's code to crack. You know, you know, good on Steve Jobs, good on Elon Musk. If it's getting them where they're going, that's awesome. You know, who am I to stop them? And, you know, ultimately, what kind of leader do you want to be? And I think even more importantly, what is the legacy that you want to leave behind in your leadership? Mm. Because, I don't know, I talk to lots of people, and maybe I'm getting a little metaphysical on this now for a moment, but generally, when I talk to people and they talk about particularly their legacies, and I work with lots of leaders who are thinking about retiring or have retired, and what they most remark on are what are the relationships that they've created? How do people feel about them when they're done, right? And I'll get real personal on this. My father passed away this past June after a struggle with Parkinson's disease. And what I really understood towards the end is 
you don't get to take any of this stuff with you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you can make billions of dollars and Steve Jobs, thank you, but he's not here anymore. Mm-hmm. And so the question does become, what kind of relationships do you want to leave behind? What kind of legacy? How do you want to be remembered? And do you want to be that leader who's like made a billion dollars with an asterisk, but was a big pain in the ass? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you get to decide. And I'm not here to prescribe any version. I just think, look at the research, look at the data, and then try stuff out. You know, it's like if you want to be a better connector, listen with purpose, right? If you want to be a better communicator, try asking for a receipt. If you want to be a better collaborator, try that platinum rule, right? Treat other people the way they like to be treated, the strawberries and cream example. Like it doesn't matter which one you try first, but one of the things that great leaders do is they take action consistently. So take action, see what works, and if it's working, do more of it and then add more things to your leadership repertoire. Yeah, I think with those two, uh, with Steve and, and Elon in particular, the, the story's been glorified over and over again, which almost creates the self-fulfilling prophecy of that being the formula. Like that yeah. is the formula to build a billion-dollar business. You can't do it any other way. So people are like yeah, that mimicking is really – and when you talk about laziness, well, it worked for those guys. I must do the same thing, right? Yeah. So. Moving on from the entrepreneurship world, the in reference to your TED Talk, what is the basic truth that most leaders neglect? Yeah, the basic truth, and that we've touched on some of the themes in it, the basic truth that most leaders neglect is that at its core, leadership is a relationship built on connection. And you can't have a relationship without connection. And so taking the time to build connection early and often is the basic truth that most leaders neglect. Yeah, I love it. Do you believe that all leaders, first first and foremost, should just look at building the relationship with each individual? I think that all leaders should definitely build real authentic relationships with people that they really interact with. Now, what ends up happening is, let's say you're the CEO of a 10,000-person organization how do you build real relationships with all 10,000 people, mm. right? So one thing I want to do is I want to create a culture and model and create guidelines and guideposts for what that looks like in a kind of, you can call it in a cascade faction. So how I work with my executive team and how they work with their direct reports, et cetera. And also, how do I also sim- create symbols and communications so that I am modeling basically rituals in the cultural environment so that people understand this is the type of leader that I am, even if they don't interact with me on a day-to-day basis, right? So I'll give you an example of this. Um, there's, a, there's a few different examples I could I come to mind, but one, I write about this in the book, um, the former CEO of Campbell's Soup uh, sent out handwritten thank you cards to mm. every single employee. Now, they didn't necessarily meet him in person, but over the course of his 10 years there, he wrote, I think, 27,000 thank you notes. We're talking about like this ends up being like 12 a day every day for decades. You know, he had a team help him like sort through. But these, and these are personalized about something specific. But you just think about that. You know, obviously you can't build relationship with everyone to the level that you, you know, you're kind of closer circle. But I think there are things that you can do to build and show people that your intentions are good and that. You know, what are the things that we reward? What are the stories that we tell? You know, these are the things that make a difference. So another example um, 
is uh, one of the companies I work with, and I write about this in the book too, is a medical device company. And one thing they do is every quarter, they have an all-employee town hall. And they bring in patients that use their medical products, and the patients tell stories about how the company's products have literally, in some cases, saved their lives. And from, I'm told, there's never a dry eye in the house. It's also incredibly powerful and moving. So things that you do to show people their connection to purpose, because you may not be able to connect to you personally, but how can you create an environment where people can connect to the company's purpose overall? It makes a difference. So whether it's one-on-one or one-on-thousands, there's a lot you can do, and it boils down to intentionality. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, I am. We are. I'm conscious of your time. One last question before we will uh, jump into the quick fire questions at the sure. end. Um, what does and and it wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't uh, or a recent podcast if I didn't bring up the pandemic. What does the what does leadership look like for you coming out of the pandemic? Great question. What does it look like? I think from from, from the uncertainty point of view, like yeah, yeah. So I will give you uh, four answers to this. I'll give one overarching answer, and then I'll give the three uh, underneath answers to that. Great. Um, overarching answer is what does leadership look like coming out of the pandemic? Be exceedingly human. That is the overarching answer. Mm. So let's talk about some things that you can do to look what that looks like in the midst of uncertainty people go to a vacuum in, right and uncertainty means unknowns unknowns is a vacuum of information in vacuums people tend to fill vacuums because they have to with negativity it's how we're wired humans have a negativity bias so number one thing to do to avoid that negativity is over communicate so filling the voids in with over communicating leaning into communicating more than you think okay so that's number one the second one is related to this which is consistent two-way asking for feedback and the question to be asking is what can we do to help better support you right because there's so much going on both physically mentally emotionally you know wellness mental health all this stuff going on people have been through the ringer for the last two years all around the world and while we might all be in the same storm we are not all in the same boat coming out of this so number two is asking people for feedback and number three and this goes way back to what we talked about at the beginning there's no one-size-fits-all solution. So how can you, as a leader, be creative to help person X with person X's problems, person Y with person Y's problems, et cetera, et cetera? So those are the three things. Be, you know, and, that, and when you do those three things, which, again, are around over-communicating, asking for feedback, and then ultimately uh, making sure that you lean in, you are exceedingly human. As, as you do that and making sure, you know, and there is no one size fits all solution, which is why each code has to be cracked on a case by case basis. Excellent. Thank you for that. That is, that is good. And you've written an article actually similar to that. Uh, I, that, that article that, just came out recently, which yes. is why it's top of mind. Yes. Brilliant. And I, um, I did get a glimpse of that before the podcast. I just wanted to bring that in. We cool. went in. So thank you for that. Quick fire questions to round yes. off the, uh, these typically are, I, I call them quick fire, but they never end up being quick fire. So, um, and, and Blue, feel, is, that feel, the right, <laughs> is that the right answer? Feel, feel free. It could be. It depends on how you want to answer. Um, feel free to elaborate, which, uh, because um, 
yeah, I really like to get into the inner workings of the brain in these questions. But I always awesome. we are very, very big readers, and obviously, um, your book is one that I've I've recommended already to a few people to to jump onto, and I and I no doubt will recommend to um, to many, many more. Other than your own, what is a book that you are reading right now? Book I am reading right now. I am actually reading Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel okay. Kahneman's yeah, that's great a, work. That's so I'm actually going through that and reading it for the second time. Yeah. So that is a ripper. What is one book that you believe, again, outside of your own, one book that you believe that all readers, or all leaders, I should say, should read? I am a huge fan of the classic. Um, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective yeah. People. I think it has actually become a part of the consciousness of the world that we live in on multiple levels. Um, and, you know, people refer to like, oh, that's like habit four. Like just, just to even feel like you're in the club of what's going on. But I, I just think that what Covey was able to do is distill down so many timeless fundamental universal principles and make them so accessible. I mean, I must have been 22 or 23 when that book came out. Yeah. And it blew my mind because it just, oh, this all just makes sense. It just, it makes sense. It's not complicated. And I found it really valuable. So that's a book. And again, it's a, it's a classic for a reason. It's still I'm, on the bestseller I'm list. I'm glad. I'm not sure if you've picked up it over my left shoulder there or right shoulder. However, it looked, uh -huh. uh, the name is it, of the is podcast right is Creating Synergy, which is one of the habits of, exactly. of, of Stephen Covey's book. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a very, very big fan. Uh, is there any other podcasts or, or audio or no, yeah, no, or the podcasts or, or TED Talks that you can recommend, which are also really great to listen to? I listen to, there's a guy named Dax Shepard. He's got a podcast called Armchair Expert. Mm -hmm. And he's funny. He's an he's a actor. He's a Hollywood actor. That's he does TV shows and movies. But he's wicked smart. And he has all kinds, I mean, he has celebrities on sometimes. Yeah. But he also brings on like Daniel Kahneman on his yeah. show. He brings on really interesting people and asks really good questions. And it's super entertaining too. So I really enjoy hearing a lot of these guests. And then it's, it's a good place where I start, if I find people I like, then I launch off and listen to their other podcasts. That's yeah. one of the things that I do. So uh, another, another book that I'll just plug since we're talking about books. I'm a big fan of uh, Professor B.J. Fogg at Stanford and his book, Tiny Habits. Uh, yes. If you're really serious about behavior change, uh, I, I am just, I'm a big, big fan and I use a lot of that methodology in my work with helping people with habit formation because it just, he's done the research, it's kind of the primary source and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think uh, James Clear is also with his Atomic Habits, he's taken a lot from that. <laughs> from that yeah, James Clear has borrowed well as, yeah. and James, he'll yeah. give BJ Fogg a lot of credit. James, James is a great writer. James is, it's, I love his last name because that's exactly what his writing is. It's yeah. super clear. I have yeah. loved his work for quite some time. If, uh, actually, this is a, so we're big Brene Brown fans here as well. Um, my business partner spent some time over in the US with Brene. So we've come back and done the dead lead courses and, and all the above, brought that back here. But uh, this is one of her questions. What is the lesson that is taking you the longest to learn? Oh, that's a great question. It is. That's why I stole it. I stole shamelessly as well. Uh, the, the, the lesson that is taking me longest to learn, you know, it's, it's funny because like all these are like layers of an onion where you mm. think you've learned the lesson and then there's more there. Um, I think the lesson that I have taken longest to learn is that um, people's pain and wounds don't ever go away. 
that they are, I mean, they, they start to reduce and minimize, but they can be awakened and uh, <laughs> awakened and bro- brought back really at any time. Mm. Um, and it's amazing how if something is imprinted in your emotional memory, it's there. And, and it, why I bring that up is I think just having compassion for what people are going through because you know being human is not easy. Mm. <laughs> and no one gets out of this world alive. So, you know, giving people some grace and some credit for dealing with what they're dealing with because you know, no one's had it perfect and there are wounds along the way and for whatever reasons and they may make absolutely no rational sense and they're and for subjectively they're real. So, for me, that is a lesson that I feel like has taken me the longest to learn because it keeps it keeps showing up and I feel like I keep learning that lesson again and again. Mm. Yes. Very powerful. If you could invite three people over for dinner, who would they be? Living or dead, doesn't matter? Doesn't matter. Uh, I'm going to go, one is Nelson Mandela. You know, because what a hero. I mean, reading his autobiography, I never got to meet him. I never got to hear him speak live, but just, uh, wow. Certainly one. Um, I think Brene Brown would be great to have over for dinner. She would be. Um, She would be a lot of fun. Um, she has got this persona that just makes you feel so like, I'm just sitting around chatting with you. Yeah. Like she's got that thing that just makes you real feel super comfortable. I'm a big fan. <laughs> you did fan the accent quite well. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, you know. Um, gosh. And the third person, ah, my mother's father, who was killed by the Nazis way before I was born. Um, I would... Just we've done a lot of family genealogy to learn more about his life, and because that's top of mind, so that'd be a little on the, on the personal side. I'm sure there's lots of other wonderfully famous people who deserve a seat at the table, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I would like right. to talk. I'd like to talk to to my grandfather. Yeah, because your family are Holocaust survivors. Yeah, they? yeah, yeah. My mother and my grandmother. My yeah. grandmother and my mother. Uh, my grandmother was in a concentration camp, and my mother was in the Belgian underground for four years, you know, from the age of eight until she was twelve. She spent in hiding away from her own family. Does that so, come back to the lesson that you've taken the longest to learn? Is that, is that referring to those two? Oh, that's all. I mean, that that experience certainly informs who I am big yeah. time. I mean, I'm, that's something I'm really clear of and I've done lots of emotional work around it. But yeah, I mean, I think their examples are maybe hopefully two of the more extreme, but I think all of us have versions of our own trauma, right? If Trauma, and it's funny, when, pan- when the pandemic started, I looked up the word trauma in the dictionary, and mm. my favorite definition is a deeply distressing or disturbing experience, right? It's not, that co- it's not that complicated. And I thought, oh, this is a global trauma. Like, the whole world is going through a deeply distressing and disturbing experience with this mm. pandemic because, you know, this invisible virus that can kill you, that's pretty disturbing. Um, so all of which to say is, yes, yeah, certainly the traumas that my mother and my grandmother experienced are horrific. And it certainly gave me a lot of compassion and empathy. I mean, there's no accident I got interested in connection and empathy and a certain level of sensitivity because as a kid, I was trying to tiptoe around the house to make sure I wasn't upsetting them because because a kid doesn't realize this has nothing to do with you, kid. This has to do with the fact they've had this really deeply distressing, disturbing yeah. experience. But kids don't know that. So, you know, the silver lining in all that is it totally sharpened certain of my, what I call my kind of empathic superpowers, mm-hmm. but I didn't know any better. So, but the fact is we all have those experiences. We all have trauma. We all have deeply distressing and disturbing experiences. And the more that we can have compassion for others, the more that we can help each other through that. Because it is amazing 
how life is best lived in community and that sense of belonging. I'm sure you've heard, you know, in the ancient, the, the Greeks and the Romans, the worst thing that could happen is you'd be banished and exiled from oh. your community, right? Because like that longing to be a part of something yeah. is so it's powerful. Basic fundamental, well, it's a part of Maslow's hierarchy, isn't it? The, yeah, the, yeah. The belong, belonging. Yeah. What's some of the best advice that you've ever received? Okay, uh, some of the best advice. Some a mentor of mine said, "Hey, Alain, here's one of your problems, which is always a great way to start advice. One of your problems is uh, you approach everything in life like you're trying to get 100 on a test, and some tests in life are just pass fail." That was that hit me like a ton of bricks because yeah. I call myself a self-identified recovering perfectionist. So all the ref- all the recovering perfectionists in the audience right now are nodding your head. You know exactly. <laughs> Everyone else is like, "What? What's that?" <laughs> well, all the perfectionists are like, "Oh my gosh, that is so profound." Yeah. So don't spend your life trying to get hundreds on tests that are just pass fail. Uh, that's really good um, piece yeah, of advice. Good. And I'd say, oh, another thing has been, or and I, I a couple of different mentors have shared this with me, um, which is. If you want to change something, you need to do something. So ultimately, yeah, you can have all the beliefs and the behaviors and the emo- it comes down to action, right? It comes down to taking yeah. action. So, and uh, another piece of advice that I got, and this came actually from drama school, was fake it till you make it, right? Mm. Is if you start acting as if, the world will start to shift. And if you can start, you know, like, so if I, and, you know, and if for those are probably familiar with the TED talk from Amy Cuddy and her power yeah. moves, yeah. right? So this whole sense of like embodying, like there is something like right now, if, if I said to you, Daniel, make the biggest smile you can, right? go ahead, don't smile, right? <laughs> it's going to change, it's going to change your physiology, it's going to change your emotional life, even though it's completely contrived. Yeah. I mean, that's the fact is there's the outside in or the inside out approach. So those are some of the pieces of advice that have, have helped a yeah, lot. Yeah, I've used the old power pose a few times. Uh, exactly. The, um, the, the piece around pass-fail though, I, I just want to touch on that quickly. Yeah. How do you know whether it is a pass-fail moment or whether it is I need to give 100% here? Ah, uh, well, I think that goes back to the, are you in performance mode or are you in learning mode? I yeah. think if you're in performance mode, you're like, oh, I got to go, got to make it happen. Because yeah. I step back and go like, well, like, what's that important like right now? You know, um, so for example, um, let's say I'm ordering a, a dish off of the menu at a restaurant. Mm. You know what? At the end of the day, or and I think another way to look at it is like five years from now, how important is this decision going to be? Yeah. You know, You know, it's like thinking about this or even maybe like, five days from now how important is the decision going to be yeah and i think trying to give it give it you know because the fact is whether or not i make the right choice on my dinner um, off the menu it's <laughs> it's, it's it's all going to be okay yeah it's all yeah, gonna i often be okay. apply the 80 20 rule a lot yeah exactly if you had a time access to a time machine where would you go oh my gosh where would i go in a time machine i would go a lot there's a lot of places i would go um, in a time machine, I would certainly love to go into the future. Mm. Um, that's the first place I'd go yeah, um, to check go. things I'm out. The, I'm in the same machine, I think. Yeah. Um, I think I would probably go. I, I, I would start with like a hundred. If I can go multiple, I'd start a hundred years ahead, mm. and then I'd probably go two hundred years ahead, and then I'd probably go fifty years ahead, and then I kind of back it up slowly, and then I might go in the past. But mostly, I'm kind of curious about the future stuff. But there's so much in the past, too, because I'm becoming more and more. As I get older, I'm more and more of a student of history, too. Because it used to be like when I was a kid, like 30 years ago seemed like forever. And now <laughs> 200 years ago doesn't seem that long ago at all. That's <laughs> right. So, it's all relative. Yeah. If you had one superhero power, what would it be? 
Uh, teleportation. Yes. Yes. Most people just go straight to flying. So thank you. Ah, tele- no, <laughs> teleportation is just so much like quicker. Yeah, agreed. Flying, <laughs> you've got to go from here to there. I just want to be there. Yeah. I don't want to take any time to get yeah, there. Absolutely. Yes. Well done. And I didn't prep you on this. I probably should have. Do you have a good dad joke? Do I have a good dad joke? Oh my God, all of my jokes are, are dad jokes. And so, I think by definition, they're all bad dad jokes, right? Gosh, I don't. Is there one? Oh, I've got a couple of jokes that are so not suitable for your podcast, so I won't share those. Um, yeah, um, this is one. Um, so why did the, what was it? Oh yeah, so why did the goose cross the road? Why did the goose cross the road? Because he was stapled to the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> that's just a bad joke in general. I love it. It's not 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 particularly not particularly no, a good one. It is it is brilliant. Do you now? Do you now? I want one. Do you have a, a good dad right, joke? Well, I, I got one that can kind of um, is very similar, and there's like a, a a duck walks into a psychiatrist. <laughs> sorry, no, sorry. Actually, I stuffed that up. I'm, this is the typical. Uh, there you go. A guy walks into a, a psychiatrist with a duck on his head. Right, right. There's a duck on his head, and the psychiatrist goes, "Have a seat. How can I help you?" And all of a sudden, the duck goes, "Man, I got this bloody bloke on my ass." <laughs> it's horrible, but it's kind of similar to the, the chicken is. and the goose. <laughs> it's all it's all relative. It's all relative. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, Alana. It's been absolutely amazing um hearing your insights and, and kudos to all the work that you're doing it is it is amazing your, your book in itself your talks the writings that you do on forbes and all the other magazines and articles that you've written over your years have, have pearls of wisdom in there and, and we thank you for your uh, time your research everything that goes into it because we're all learning from them so uh, thank you for that my pleasure it's such a pleasure talking with you today daniel really really i i appreciated all your questions and just love the conversation so where can we find you? What's the best way that we can uh, get in touch? And do you want people to get in touch? Absolutely. So easiest place to go for all things Alan Hunkins is go to my website, which is www. And I'll spell it out for you because my first name's a little interesting. It's yeah, it took me A-L- a while to grasp. Alain Hunkins. Alain Hunkins.com, which is A-L-A-I-N-H-U-N-K-I-N-S.com. And while you're there, you can download, the, if you go to the resources tab, you can download the first chapter of the book. There's also a free book called Navigating Trust. It's an ebook. You can sign up for my mailing list. I send out a leadership newsletter once a month. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. As you know, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. And since you've listened this far, you are now part of the end of the podcast club, which means if you have any questions, want to reach out to me directly, I'm going to give you my personal email address. Really simple. It's Alain, A-L-A-I-N at alanhunkins.com. So that's how you can reach me. And do, don't be a stranger. If I can be of any support to you in any way, please do reach out. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And thanks again for your time. Rest your foot up for, for those who, we, we actually didn't discuss this in the we podcast. We didn't discuss. But, I broke my uh, foot last yeah. week. So I've been doing this all with an elevated foot. Yes. Just imagine how I would have been if I had both feet working. <laughs> yeah, if you are watching the video, that is the reason why you're sitting on half an angle. <laughs> I'm sitting sideways, sideways here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks again for your time. We'll uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Perfect. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening to the podcast all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. 
I am going to ask though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate and review. And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care guys, all the best. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump onto the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.